in God's providence, we do, we do not need to search for another scripture to think and talk about the resurrection of Christ. In his providence and timing, we are at one of the, a perfect verse to talk about resurrection and the difference that resurrection makes in our lives. We are currently studying through the book of Romans. Uh, One thing you'd need to know about Grace Church, if you're new to Grace Church, is that's what we do. Normally, we are studying through books of the Bible. Occasionally, we will interrupt that with a short series or something. But our normal habit is to be preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we, that way we don't get to skip hard things and all of that kind of thing. We, we put, try to put before you the whole counsel of God, which is our calling if we are pastors. And I don't know if any pastors are listening to me, but sometimes pastors are tending to skip the hard things. That's not our job. Our job is to preach the word, all of the word. And have God use that to build his kingdom, to work in his people. We're going to read from verses 1 through 13 this morning in chapter 10. And then we will look more specifically at 6 through 13. As we're coming to sort of a head and a turn about this section that compares uh, the righteousness based on law with the righteousness based on faith, works and faith. And we've seen that that uh, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. We'll pick up with Paul. Again, Paul's sort of repeating his burden for his Jewish brethren. He says in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will ascend, descend to the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone. Who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this promise that. Everyone who calls on you in faith, everyone who turns to you and looks to you and calls on you for salvation will be heard. Because you work that call in us. We bow before you in your word this morning. We thank you for your grace, 
your Son, His death, burial, and resurrection, the truth of the Gospel, that Christ came to save His enemies, that salvation is a free gift because Christ has earned it, paid for it in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. We look to You this morning and pray that You would work in us through Your Word, that You would help us as we seek to understand it and live in its light. Help me to preach it in the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear it in the power of the Spirit. We know that Your Word does not return to You void, that it accomplishes the purpose for which You have sent it. So, Lord, accomplish Your purpose this morning. We, we can pray that in full confidence and we can trust You to do that. Bless the preaching and the hearing of the Word. We pray for it and we trust for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, I know when I was growing up, a big deal with me was concerts. I love to go to concerts. I remember the first concert I went to. So imagine with me if there's this, you have a favorite band and tickets are expensive, right? But you're able to come up with tickets to a concert to see your favorite band. And so you're excited. You can't wait. The day comes. You go, you drive to the to the wherever the concert is, to the venue, and you're 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 with going up to the door with joy and you hand them your ticket and they hand it back to you and tell you that it's fake. And you can't come in. You're turned away at the door because you have a counterfeit ticket. You bought it off Facebook, Mar- Facebook Marketplace. It was at a reduced price. It looked real. But it was not real. And you face crushing disappointment. How much worse would it be for you to make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, only to stand before Him one day and hear Him say, Depart from Me. I never knew you. You had a false faith. You had a counterfeit faith. Sure, you prayed the prayer, but it never changed your heart. We must understand the nature of true faith. And this text is going to help us greatly with that. That's why I entitled this sermon, Resurrection Faith. We're going to look at verses 6 to 13. And we'll see the main point of what I want you to see is this. Resurrection faith does not trust in its own efforts to be good enough. That's the righteousness of the law we've been talking about. But it trusts in Jesus alone, His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The gospel is not about what you can do for God to make yourself worthy. The gospel is about what He has done for us to reconcile us to Himself. So, resurrection faith does not trust in its own efforts to be good enough, but it trusts in Jesus alone, in His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, in Him. 
Look quickly at at verses 6 and 7. There's a lot more we can say. We're not going to say this morning, but we'll look at these quickly and uh, see what we can see. But resurrection faith does not trust in its own works. And we've been seeing this. This is kind of a repetition that we've seen as Paul is sort of trying to get through to his brethren, the Jews, and trying to get them to see that they cannot be righteous by keeping the law. They cannot be righteous by their own efforts. They must look to Christ in faith in order to be accepted as righteous and be considered true child of God. Verse Paul is, Paul has already told us we're contrasting righteousness of faith and righteousness of the law. And he says in verse 6 with this but, this is a contrast in verse 6 that starts off the verse. He's contrasting with verse 5, which says Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live with them. We'll have life if we can perfectly do the commandments, but we know none of us can. But, he says, the righteousness based on faith says... And what he's going to do here, he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 14. He's going to see that verse in light of its fulfillment in Christ and, and use it in a way that shows that we are not to count on our works, but on Christ. So a lot we could say. But one, one thing I want to say about it before I say anything else uh, on this text is that I'm using resurrection faith as a synonym for true faith, if you're wondering. I'm just calling true faith in Christ, resurrection faith. Um, there is a false faith and a true faith, and resurrection faith is representing the true faith. So look, look what Paul says as he, as he quotes from the verse. And, you know, the original verse was showing uh, the Israelites how the law was not beyond them. It was not above them. It was not away from them. It was right in front of them. God was making plain what he was requiring of them. We know that none of us can do that, so it's pointing forward to Christ as well, who is the fulfillment of all of this. But he says, do not say, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. This is not what grace teaches us or the righteousness based on faith. This is not what God teaches us. This is not the proper application. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then Paul adds, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss or the abode of the dead, that is to bring Christ up. Paul's showing us the contrast between the law and the gospel. He's seeing the foreshadowing of the gospel in what God had said to the Israelites. Christ, the gospel, is Christ. And he is the one who would come and fulfill the law for his people and save them through faith. So just as God was clear about the law when he wrote in Deuteronomy, he was clear about the law. So he's clear, too, about the gospel. There is no need to try to travel to heaven to bring Christ down, for he has already been sent into the world. Nor should anyone think they can bring him up from the dead, for he's been raised from the dead. What is the point here? What God requires is not any sort of superhuman effort. Any sort of works that we can do to make ourselves right. But faith in the gospel. Again, and we don't have time to go back through everything we've seen leading up to this text. But beware. Beware. Beware of self-righteousness. We are born hardwired legalists. We are born thinking we can be good enough. We are born that we have to be good enough for God to love us. 
So we'll water down the law and elevate our efforts so that somehow we'll at least be better than our neighbor. And therefore, God will have to accept us because Hitler was worse than we were. That's just not how it works. That's not how the gospel works. Paul is saying, don't say to yourself, the righteousness based on faith is telling you not to say to yourself what you can do to make yourself right with God. You can't bring Christ down. You can't bring him up. He's already come down and he's already been raised up and he's provided the gospel for us. God doesn't require superhuman works. But faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I warn you, self-righteousness is very subtle. Very subtle on getting you to depend on your own efforts. Even as Christians, most days we wake up legalists and we need the gospel to remind us who we are. Because we'll, on our good days, we'll feel saved. And on our bad days, we'll feel lost. And we need to remember what Jerry Bridges told us, right? The good days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And your bad days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. So trust and rest in Him, not in your own self-effort. And Paul is showing, pointing us to Christ, who is the fulfillment of that law and those commands. See, even, even back, if you go read Deuteronomy, you'll see that God told Israel they weren't going into the land because of their righteousness. They were going into the land because of the wickedness of the people that dwelt there, that were being removed so that they might have a land. And if they did as those nations did, they would be removed too. Guess what? They did and they were. They were removed. But let me just show you a couple of verses that highlight the danger of self-righteousness and we're going to move on because we need to go. Luke 18. We go into, if we go into Luke 18, we see this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, we have, there's a lot to learn there. But one of the things you see in the Pharisee is this sort of self-righteousness. I am a child of Abraham, therefore I am a child of God. I do all this good stuff, Lord, so I'm good. So he exalts himself and looks down on the tax collector. And that's always a red light on the dashboard when we're looking down at people and thinking we're superior. But the Pharisee says this. In Luke 18, 11 and 12, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Now he's praying. Watch what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I, 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 I. You stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you start with I, you are lost. Didn't I do this and didn't I do that? And wasn't I better than Hitler? My neighbor was worse than me. The Pharisee is self-absorbed, self-righteous, bragging on himself to God and looking down on the person next to him. This is a serious matter. If you are in any way depending upon your own self or your own works, you won't make it. Well, my good works will outweigh my bad. You don't have any good works before a holy God unless you come to Christ. Isaiah said all of our righteousness, all of our righteous attempts are filthy rags. 
And listen, why are you so excited about this? There are a lot of people that go to church every Sunday that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. That are counting on their own works or they're counting on that prayer they prayed. It made no difference in their life. Look at Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. I'm not going to beat you up long, but I want you to see this. R.C. Sproul came and preached in a church I was going to, and he said this was the scariest verse in Scripture that he knew about. So I'm going to agree with him. 7, 21 to 23. Look at what this says. And look, listen to me. Look at this. Pay attention. Get this now before you stand before him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, stop. That repetition, that's a claim of intimacy when you repeat somebody's name, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now watch this. On that day, what day? Judgment day. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's an impressive list, isn't it? But it's the same as the other one we read. I, I, I. In the context, they were in the context of the covenant people. And they were impacted by rubbing up against a lot of these things in the context of the covenant people. Look, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And watch what Jesus says. This is Jesus talking. Then he will, he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You who are careless with my commandments. You who claim to have a faith, but it hasn't changed the way you live. Yeah, you're doing a lot of flashy stuff in the church. But your heart was never changed. Notice what he says in verse 23. Not, I knew you and then I didn't know you. Not you had it and you lost it. They had made a profession of faith. They were in the church. They were in the midst of the church. They were part of all of these things that were happening. But Jesus says, I never knew you. And I'm telling you, please listen to me. I've been, to, I've been in enough churches and enough business meetings to know that there's a lot of lost people in churches. And some of them are leadership. There are people in churches all over this country and this world, especially in the South. There are people in churches been going all their life. Who are going to hear that? If God doesn't bring them to repentance and true faith. Resurrection faith. True faith. It's what we need, and it's what those folks didn't have. Because Christ was clear about the Pharisee that he didn't go home justified. And he's clear here about these people that no matter kind of how they were in the context of the gospel, they never really got the gospel and turned to Christ. So look at what the righteousness based on faith in verse 6 The righteousness based on faith tells us what not to say before it tells us what to say. Do not say in your heart, what can I do? I can do it. I can get it. I can make it. Number two, resurrection faith trusts in Christ alone. That's really the point we're driving to here. 
This is what Paul wants the Israelites to get. Look at verse 8. We have verse 8 and then we have 9 to 30. That's, that's an explanation of verse 8. don't need to go into much technical detail there. So if the righteousness of faith tells us not to say this, what does it say? The word is near you. Just like that word before, that word of the law was near them. It wasn't far off. God was explaining to them what he was doing and what he required to them and explaining it to them in a way that they could get it and understand it. He just wouldn't do it. What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, when you see that phrase, the word of faith, I'm not going to say much about this, but this is not talking about health and wealth theology. This is not talking about the mess that Kenneth Copeland blabbers about and others. That, literally, that's the word about faith. This is talking about the gospel, right? The word about faith that we proclaim. The word about faith is the word about Christ in whom we are to have faith. Right. And we'll talk we'll talk a little bit more about that. But look what it says there. It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, the word about faith, the gospel that we proclaim because and we're going to see elements of resurrection faith here and be asking yourself, are these things true of me? Have I seen God work this in my heart? Do I have these elements of true faith in me? Just. Be honest with yourself. Is this true of me? You don't have to say anything to anybody around you. Just think as this word goes forth. Is this describing me? Because I'm telling you, it's not describing some of you. Now, I'm not peeking in your windows. I just know in a crowd this big, there's people in here that don't know Jesus. Resurrection faith, trust in Christ alone. We've seen in verse 8, now in verse 9, because the word of faith is near you, the word we're proclaiming, because now watch this if. Conditional statement. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth. The good confession, the confession of the early church, the early, early confession, right? Coming to faith in Christ and coming to the waters of baptism, the confession would be made, Jesus Christ is Lord. What about the culture of that day? What was the mandate of the culture? The culture in the Roman emperor worship would, would mandate on its citizens to be able to confess Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. And the Christians were great citizens, good citizens in that day, but they could never make that confession because they knew that Caesar was not Lord. He was not a God. Christ was Lord. Christ was God. And so that confession, no one can confess, not that you can't say this to yourself, but confess it in truth, in public, that Jesus Christ is Lord in the context like that. Look at the first characteristic. Resurrection, of, resurrection faith confesses Christ as Lord. Verse 9. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Are you a confessor to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord? His, rep, his resurrection proves that there's not an inch of this universe that doesn't belong to Him. Are you a confessor of His Lordship? 
See, a confession is an outward expression of an inward trust. We're confessing what we believe. When the, when, the, when the heat is on or when we're around people we want to impress or we're around our friends, what, what is coming out of our mouth and what's not coming out of our mouth? Because what's in our heart is going to come out our mouth. Confession is an outward expression of inward trust. And so there's a, there's a couplet here, believing and confessing. And, and they're not two separate things, but they're two parts of a singular expression of faith in Jesus' Lordship. There was a lot of silly discussion years and years ago about whether or not one could accept Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. And there were people in the church that tried to defend that mess. You, you can have Him as Savior now and maybe someday later on down the road you'll, you'll have Him as Lord. That's foolishness. A great Greek word for that. Hogwash. Look what it says. How do you know you have true faith? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And if that confession is not just one of convenience, right? Listen, unlike the Roman Empire, growing up in the South or maybe even in America, it's not that much true now, but it was confessing Christ was an advantage. People would go to church to help their business and, you know, Claiming Christ. There's not advantage as much anymore. Are we confessing Christ on our Facebook page? On our tweets and Twitters and Twitches and whatever all else is out there? Would anybody have any idea you're a Christian? If not, at least in that realm, you're denying Him. Conviction, right? It should be. Confession is an outward expression of an inward faith. So believing and confessing go together. He's just distinguishing to show us that it's not a private matter. Real faith is not something we just hold in and it's private. And it's just me. I don't have to tell you about it. No, confession is part of resurrection faith. Confession and belief are two parts of a singular reality. Now look at the next one. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why does the soul publicly confess Christ as Lord? Because it believes that he's been raised from the dead, that he is who he said he was, that the gospel is true. It confesses Christ publicly out of a love for Christ. Nobody has to get a, put a gun to your head to make you talk publicly about your grandchildren. Why? Because you love them and you just know they're the prettiest, smartest people on the planet. Well, they hadn't grown up yet. But, <clears throat> but see, the heart talks about what it loves. That's examining, right? But it says right here that we believe true faith, resurrection faith, faith believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. True faith is confidence in the resurrection of Christ. If you don't believe He was literally bodily raised from the grave, you're not a Christian. I didn't make that up. You say, oh, well, you're just an old mean legalistic preacher. No, I'm just reading the Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, if there is no resurrection, we're wasting our time here this morning. 
We should be at, well, I started to say the beach, but it looks pretty nasty out there. Look at, look at Paul's reality of that fact in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, watch what he says. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So we're going to progress down this if then. And if Christ has not been raised, well, it's okay. You really just kind of, as long as you're sincere. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not, now watch this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep died. In Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There is no such thing as Christianity that doesn't believe in the resurrection. There are whole churches, I'm going to put them in quotes these days, who are... Constantly sticking their finger in God's eye with what they promote. Who claim to be Christian churches, but they don't believe in the bodily, they don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. But the word clearly says, if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. Why are you fooling around with it? I'll tell you why, because men are hard, men and women, boys and girls are hardwired legalists. We want a way to make ourselves right. And people like that will water it down low enough for you so that you can make yourself right and feel good about yourself. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. And if your faith is not faith in the resurrection, you're not a Christian. I love you enough to tell you that. That's what, go back to Romans. That's what he is saying. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's coming out of your heart because you believe it. And if you believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What is the obvious flip side implication of that? If you don't believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you are not saved. You don't have to pass a theology exam, okay, to be a Christian. But what this is saying is God works faith in Christ in the heart of those He saves. And part of that faith that He works in the heart is a faith in the resurrection of Christ. Why in the world would you trust in a dead Savior? Muhammad's still in the grave. Lion of Buddha's all kind of Christian. All, all, people die and they go in the grave. And they don't come out. If you don't have a risen Savior, find a better one. If you don't have a risen Savior, you don't have... A Savior. There is a Savior and it's not you. Don't depend upon your own works. Look at true faith believes in the resurrection. I'm not saying you never have days when you doubt or question or struggle. And of course, none of us have perfect faith. But push the wall. True faith believes in the resurrection. And God, it's the basis of God's commandment of faith. Listen to me. You may not be a Christian this morning, but God commands you to be one. Did you know that? 
You might think, oh, this is foolishness. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm here because I'm just trying to be with somebody else, be with my family on Easter. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Look at this. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he suggests if it fits in your plans that all people might would repent. No, that's not what he says. Now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And he's given assurance of this. Of this, he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. See, God is even pointing us to the fact that the resurrection proves Christ is who he said he was. On the basis of Christ's resurrection, the Son of God's resurrection, God, the true and living God, commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn and trust in this Jesus. Are you trusting in him this morning? Here's some evidence, and this quick, I'm just going to run through this because we're trusting in the word. But here's a few lines of evidence for the resurrection. Number one, the empty tomb. And even if Christ's disciples forgot where that tomb was, the authorities sure didn't forget where it was. They had sent guards to guard it. Now, the disciples didn't either. They watched them bury him, right? Listen to me. The tomb was empty. If it was not, think about this. When the apostles were standing in the temple preaching the resurrection of Christ, all the authorities had to do was go back to that tomb and and produce that body. And that would have shut the whole Christian enterprise down. You know why they didn't do that? Because they couldn't. He was not in there, as Spurgeon said in that quote. But the empty tomb is is a line of reasoning. And the reports of the empty tomb are written in a time when the, the, the people that were there could have testified to, to there being a difference if there was one. Christ appeared to the apostles. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. There's a lot of evidence. But his tomb was empty. And the, the authorities knew it and made up silly stories about it. I'll let you go read the end of Matthew. Somehow these wimpy disciples overpowered a Roman guard. Uh, More than one. So, empty tomb. Number two, post-resurrection appearances. I just mentioned Jesus appeared to his disciples over 40 days, proving he was alive. He appeared to, to Peter. He appeared to Paul. He even appeared to 500 people at one time. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Number three, this is a powerful line of evidence, the transformation of the disciples. When Jesus died on that cross, were they sitting in a room going, whoop, wait on the third day, he's coming out. No, they were, a lot of them were going home. The disciples on the road to Emmaus are like, we thought he was the one, but hey, he died and even now it's the third day. They were hiding, trembling, scared, the authority, afraid the authorities were going to come get them next. They were locked, bolted in when Christ appeared to them. And that's what transformed them. He appeared to them and transformed them from fearful, timid, cowering cowards to courageous heralds of the resurrection. Listen, they died for the truth of the resurrection. 
And you, you, you might say, well, people die for things all the time that are not true. Yes, they do, but they don't know they're not true when they die for them. And if the apostles made all this up, then they were dying for something they knew wasn't true. And that doesn't happen. But they were willing to die for this Christ because they knew He was raised from the dead. Nobody dies for something they know isn't true. Do you all remember, some of you might remember the Watergate controversy, or maybe you've heard of it. You remember Charles Colson, right? He was a special counsel to President Richard Nixon. Uh, he ended up being the founder of Prison Fellowship because he ended up going to prison and God used it. But he said this about the resurrection. He became a Christian and started Prison Fellowship and on down. I'll let you read his biography. But he says this, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. And he says they would not have endured if that weren't true. Watch this. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And he's right. They, wouldn't, they couldn't have kept that life for 40 years, and they wouldn't have died for that truth if they had not seen Jesus raised from the grave. So, you got empty tomb, post-resurrection appearances, the transformation of the disciples from fearful to courageous, and then the growth of the church. How does this thing get started in the very city that crucified Jesus if He wasn't raised from the dead? And how does it spread all throughout the Roman Empire and all around the world? This notion of Christ's resurrection. I'm not saying religion and teaching men what they can do to be right with God. That will spread like wildfire amongst a bunch of lost legalists. But the truth of the resurrection and the truth of grace has transformed the world. Because Christ was raised from the dead. We have eyewitness testimony in the New Testament. We have testimony written in a time when if there was opposites that existed or people could prove it didn't happen, they would have been there and had done that. The the New Testament is is the, the most provable and supported document of antiquity. It is a reliable historical source. Now, the Holy Spirit has to convince you it's the Word of God. But it is a reliable historical source. And it tells us, of the resurrection from the dead. And we have witness testimony from, eyewitness testimony from the New Testament. We have testimony that is outside the New Testament. We have facts that show us that He is risen. Listen, look at me. Very smart people for 2,000 years have been trying to disprove the resurrection. And separately or together, they've not been able to do it. You know why? Because it happened. It's a matter of history. And sound historical methodology reveals good support for it. I assure you have people who don't want to believe it, who will make all sorts of weird assertions that they can't prove. He is risen. 
The fact that nobody has been able to disprove it and that people are dying for it and this gospel has come all the way to you, here to you in Swansboro. He is risen. So resurrection faith confesses the Lord Jesus Christ. It believes that he was raised from the dead. Now look in verse 10 and we see the unity of these two. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses. And is saved. Again, not that what's true in the heart comes out the life. What's true in the heart comes out the mouth. It's not this private heart matter that just stays there. Real faith, like rivers of living water flowing from, comes out. Our deeds show us what we believe. Our words show us what we believe. Do you believe in and confess this risen Savior? He is risen. Well, lastly, in this section, resurrection faith calls on Christ for salvation. Look what it says in verse 11. For Scripture says, and he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. We saw that up there at the end of chapter 9. He says, Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And when it's talking about being put to shame here, it's talking about at the judgment seat, okay? At the judgment bar. Everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. Right? And then verse 12. Now, he's going to remind us of what he's already taught us, that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. When you see that Greek, he's talking about Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Look at that. Same gospel for Jew and Gentile. The Jews need the gospel. The Gentiles need the gospel. And it's one gospel, and it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jews are not right simply by being Jews. You'll, see, you'll hear people teach that on TV, and they're crazy. Listen, y'all might not be comfortable with stuff like that, but a shepherd's job is two things. Tend the sheep and beat off the wolves. If I never talk about wolves to you, I'm not doing my job. Wolves need to be named because they're wearing sheep's clothing. So if you get uncomfortable when I call out Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or Joel Osteen or people like that, uh uh-oh, see, look, look out. I'm just trying to do my job to warn you of the danger. Resurrection faith calls on Christ. And then down here in verse 13, everyone who, quoting from Joel too, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we have Jew and Gentile, one Lord, one source of salvation. And to call upon the Lord means to call upon him in prayer. So let me finish the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee we saw in Luke 18 was I, 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 I. Well, what about the tax collector? It says he wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. He was humble. He was on the ground. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, he obviously wasn't saved. He didn't get the sinner's prayer right. There is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. There's no parroting group of phrases you can use to assure that you're going to heaven. Faith in Jesus is what saves you, not words. And you'll see various ways in which people in the Scripture call upon the Lord for salvation. This is one of them. And the tax collector said, God, 
All he said was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's all he needed to say. That shows he was not hoping in himself. He asked for mercy, not justice. He knew he didn't deserve it. And he's the one Christ said went home justified. So when you, when you go before God, don't, be, don't, don't start repeat wrapping your resume. Didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I. Look to Him for mercy. Look to Christ. Call on Him. Have you called out to the Lord for salvation? Kids, have you called on the Lord for salvation? Are you trusting in Christ? Have you called out to Him for mercy and grace and salvation? Have you out of a conviction of sin and lostness called on the Lord for salvation? Do you truly believe in His resurrection? Are you willing to confess Him before others? If yes, you have resurrection faith. A faith that confesses the Lord because it believes in the Lord and has called on the Lord for salvation. If not, maybe you're convinced today that the gospel is true. What is the gospel? Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, part of the same chapter, first part, go back and read the first part, that the gospel is Christ. The gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. And he was raised the third day, according to the Scripture. See, the Old Testament predicted all this. And that salvation is through faith in him. It's simply receiving the gift that God has provided. It's turning from going my own way and justifying my own way and seeking my pleasure in this world and sin. It's turning out of conviction now and a hatred of sin to receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. As your only hope and Savior. Because Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He was raised. Have you called on Him? Will you call on Him? He was born under His own law and lived and fulfilled it perfectly. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for His people's sin. He said it is finished before He left that cross. Our sin being imputed to Him. That's why He suffered. Physical suffering was horrible. But the spiritual suffering as that wrath was poured out on Him was way, way, way worse. But before he left the cross, I don't know why I'm pointing here, an old, pul- an old pulpit a preacher of mine used to use was shaped in a cross. I guess why I'm, that's why I'm doing that. But he, paid, he was the Lamb of God pictured in the Old Testament who satisfied the debt of his people. And listen to me. He paid for all of your sin. Or he paid for none of it. If you're trusting in Christ, you can know that he paid for all of your sin. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Because our sin was imputed to him and he paid the penalty that his righteousness might be imputed or credited to us before God's judgment bar. If you're trusting in Christ this morning, you've been pardoned for all of your sin and clothed in the righteousness of Christ and accepted before God as righteous. And if you're not, you haven't. So just a few points of application and we'll, we'll be done. He is risen. One of the things that tells us is do not trust in your own works. He would not have had to die and be raised if we could save ourselves. So do not trust in what you do. Don't go before God like the Pharisee. I, 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 I. 
or didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? No. Go before God looking to Christ and knowing what He has done for you. So He is risen teaches us to trust Christ alone. See, this is resurrection faith. This is true faith. Resurrection faith believes that Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you? Listen, in your own heart, just be honest with yourself. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And if you're honest enough to say no, that's good. And that maybe that indicates God's working in you. And let me give you some help with that. So if, you're, if you say, no, I don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, or I'm not sure I believe that. Some days I think I do, and some days I think I don't. Listen, the Gospel of John was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in His name. So if you are willing to investigate that fact, you don't have to read the whole Bible. Just go to the New Testament and read the Gospel of John. And as you read it, look to the Lord and say, show me. Because that's why it was written, that you might know Christ and trust in Him and have life in His name. So if you're saying, no, I don't believe in the resurrection, or I'm not sure I do, go there, please. Don't go anywhere. Listen, the worst thing you can do, having never read the Bible, is start in Genesis. No, that's true. That is true. You must get the gospel before you go read the Old Testament. You get all kind of messed up before you get to the New Testament. If you're not believing in Christ's resurrection, read the Gospel of John. If you're struggling with assurance, read the Gospel of John. See, that Gospel is the answer for unbeliever and believer. Believers need it every day. Go to the Word. And if you're struggling with assurance, go to 1 John as well. That's written to help you have assurance, help you know whether you have real faith. Do you believe Christ was raised from the dead? Because he was. What would take somebody like me who was pursuing his own way, enjoying doing it, running from God, doing a lot of stuff I'll never tell you about, and bring me to my knees, calling out on the Lord? Just grace. You know, I'll take Paul's word for it that he was a worse sinner, but I'm not sure about that. Right? Christ died for sinners. He will save you if you will look to Him. Number two, resurrection faith calls on the Lord for salvation. Have you called on the Lord for salvation? Have you looked to the Lord in true conviction and said, God, have mercy on me. Save me or I'm lost. I believe in your son. However you pray that, I won't lead you through a prayer. Y'all might wonder why we don't have altar calls and, and, and repeat parroted prayers. Because Jesus didn't do that. <laughs> the apostles didn't do that. That wasn't part of the early church. That came along later, and I can tell you about that history if you want me to. But we do call you to faith in Jesus. Resurrection faith calls on the Lord. Have you called on Him for salvation? Number three, resurrection faith confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. That's you. You want to know if it's real? Are you confessing Him? Certainly, if you were to stand before somebody and they would say, deny Him or, you, or, or we will kill you, hopefully you would stand up to that and confess Christ as Lord. If you don't have true faith, you wouldn't, Right? 
But our post-postmodern culture has a lot of people in jail and afraid to speak up about the truth. And that's one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in. So I'll just ask you again. Would your friends on Facebook know you're a Christian? I would advise you not to be on TikTok. But if you are, do those people know you're a Christian? Whatever your social media is, could people read your feed? I'm not saying you're on there preaching all the time you're on there. But would they know you're a Christian? Are you confessing him or denying him? In whatever context that means. Resurrection faith believes he was raised from the dead, calls on him for salvation, and confesses him before a lost and dying world. So just as I would hope if you did buy a concert ticket that you had a real one, my hope is that you make a profession of faith And that it's a real one. Beware of self-righteousness. Beware of works righteousness. Be sure your faith is genuine before you stand before the Lord someday. Listen to me. You will. That's another thing the resurrection proves. You will stand before this Jesus one day. And you will have to give an answer. And if you haven't kept his law and thought word indeed, you will be lost. But today is the day of salvation. And the gospel offers you a free gift that you might trust in Jesus and not in yourself. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5 says. So be sure your faith is genuine. If your faith is true faith, therefore, if it's resurrection faith, that means it's genuine faith. That means you believe believe in him. You, you, You believe in his resurrection. You confess him before. You're trusting in Christ alone. If you have resurrection faith, One day, you will stand before him and you will hear him say, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. He is risen to live as Christ. If one's true, the other one's surely true. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone listening to my voice that you would give us the mercy of being real with ourselves. Of being willing to look in the mirror and say, do I measure up? Was Christ raised from the grave? Am I confessing him? Do I believe in my heart the truth that you were raised from the dead? Those who know you grant Assurance, conviction to, to trust in your grace. Those of us who don't know you may be, Lord, work in the heart this morning that we might be willing to face the fact that we need a Savior and that Christ is that Savior. Work according to your will, with your word, by your spirit. But we really believe this morning because your word really teaches And history backs it up that you are risen from the grave. That you are reigning to see your gospel go to the ends of this earth. And you are coming again someday. May we be among those who love your appearing. And who dwell with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Save your people. And use us for your glory and help us to get this news to the ends of the earth. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.